Welcome to Conversations About Aging. I'm Diane Atwood, and I'm traveling around my home state of Maine, talking to people 60 and above about what it's like to be getting older. Everyone has a story to tell and wisdom to share. Today, I'm talking with Tom Antonick, who never thought he'd live to see 40. That's because at the age of 30, he found out he was HIV positive. More than 30 years have passed, and Tom is now 63 and doing well. I first met Tom in 1988 when he spoke at a school assembly in Scarborough that I was covering as a reporter. He did his first ever television interview with me, and he made an impression. There was so much fear and lack of understanding about HIV-AIDS during that time, and yet Tom decided early on to be open about his diagnosis and to share his story. We recently spent some time together at the Friends Meeting House in Portland, where he is a member and an adult volunteer and resource person with the New England-wide Quaker Youth Programs, working mostly with high school-aged youth. We talked about his diagnosis and how he has managed to live this long with AIDS when so many people succumbed early on. But before we got to that, Tom reminisced about his childhood. I lived mostly in Maine, but my father was in the service, so I was born in um, Florida, my sister in New Jersey, my brother in upstate New York, but my my earliest memories are from Maine. He was in the Air Force. Um, um, I, I remember being at what was now Air Force Base in Bangor. Um, we lived in France for three years and then came back. He was stationed in Topsom when that was still an Air Force installation and then retired from there. So I've lived most of my life in Maine, but also and then I went to school uh, in New York City. We sort of have parallel pasts because I'm an army brat. Oh. And um, my parents are from, they've both died now, but my father was from Westbrook, my mother was from Portland. I was born in Germany. Another mm. brother was born in Germany. There are eight of us. So born, a couple in Massachusetts, a couple in Maine, a couple in New Jersey. <laughs> Yeah, um, it's quite a life, isn't it? Trying to adjust to making new friends all the time. And... Well, you know, it was all that I knew, so I didn't um, didn't really have anything to compare it with. And I remember when we moved to Topsom, and it was not just a military school, it was a school for the community as well. And I met someone at the ripe old age of 11 years old who had lived in her house all her life, and I just thought that was astonishing. <laughs> I don't even have a memory of bedrooms. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, um, I, you know, I think in some ways it gave me um, an advantage of being prepared for change, um, and knowing that I you know, c- could be adaptable. So I think there were some benefits to it as well. How old were you when your father retired and you, they, the family settled down here in Maine? Were you still in the family? Right. Um, we, I was in, I think, the eighth grade, so you know, maybe 12 at the time. But we had been living in Topsum, and he bought a house in Lisbon Falls, which, um, you know, my forgiveness to, begging forgiveness to everyone from Lisbon Falls, I refer to as my therapy years, because it was, um, it was not an easy t- place for someone who had a you know sense of you know my sexuality as a, as a gay man that I was still I was so afraid of being outed and it was it was and I think still remains a very conservative town so there was um some challenges about living there well that's a challenging time of life anyway because you're in ad- adolescence oh absolutely you're trying to figure out who the who you are in general mm-hmm. and on top of it you're grappling with your sexuality right at what age did you suspect? Oh, I think I, in a way I always knew. I think I didn't always have the language for it. Um, I think perhaps as I got into, you know, puberty, I thought, well, maybe this is something, you know, that might pass or that I could sort of find another place sort of on, you know, the sort of on the bisexual spectrum, but that never quite happened for me. Tell me about your siblings. Where are you in the mix? I'm a middle child. Uh, my sister is the youngest. Um, she just lost her husband recently. Uh, my brother, older than I am, and um, they both also live in Maine. When you were growing up and you suspected, but you didn't have the language, how did you work through that? Or did you just day to day? You were just Tom. I think it was um, kind of a second sense of 
being very cautious of how much I revealed of myself. Even at a young, young age? Yeah, and I think it was mostly around gender roles. I remember, you know, early on liking to play with dolls and very getting getting the very clear message that that was wrong for boys. So that any sort of expression of femininity I had, had to hold back. Um, so there was... There, there was that sense around sexuality, you know, expressed or, you know, connected to uh, gender identity. And although, you know, I still clearly, I strongly identify as male, um, you know, working with youth now and all the different options that there are for sexual identities and gender expression, um, you know, I wonder if I might have um, expressed it differently if I even knew those options existed. Are you able to do an exercise where you could imagine what, how you might have expressed your identity, given the options that people have today? Right. I, I think I probably might, and, and to some degree today, I, I like the identification of queer, um, rather just a, as gay. And, and part of it is that um, sometimes I do like to have a little bit of a feminine expression of you know, wearing some, you know, costume jewelry or, um, uh, you know, something that's just a little bit, you know, tweaks the the masculine, you know, sense. I remember being at an opening once in, in New York and a young man had, you know, a traditional suit on, but he had a string of pearls. And I just thought it was striking. I just really loved that. And that's sort of the sense of expression that I, I really appreciate. Help us to understand the difference in the terminology. You said queer versus gay. Mm -hmm. So is it just in how you express yourself? I think for me, um, queer is a larger encompassing term. And you know, many people can use that, that identity. I think the term gay is just being you know, a man who is sexually attracted to other men. Um, there is some truth to that about me. But there have also been times where I've been attracted to women. Um, and I think queer speaks to just not fitting in that mainstream sort of dichotomy of um, you know, men being attracted to men, women being attracted to women, and, you know, and then those who are, who are bisexual, and then there's you know, pansexual and all sorts of others that, please don't ask me to find some of them, because they, <laughs> they I thought about right. it, but actually I said, no, I'm not going to let them make them do that. <laughs> right, because the, the definitions change, uh, change a lot, and um, you know, especially in the last few years um, with, with gender identity and you know, those who don't identify on either gender and use either they, their pronouns or other pronouns that um, are not he, him, or she, um, she, hers. So there's certainly a much more heightened awareness and sensitivity, do you think? And is that's a good thing? Oh, I think that is a good thing. And, and I think it continues to expand. Um, and there's still, you know, pushback too. Um, it's, you know, it's not easy for you know, especially, you know, the, I mean, the, the murder rate among, you know, trans people and especially trans women of African-American descent is just horrific. Um, so there's, I mean, we still have a long way to go, but I think the possibilities are now, are opening up more. Because we are all opening up more? We, by, by we, I mean human beings are willing to be more open, to talk about things, to ask questions? I think so, and I think the, um, the particularly the younger people who are finding that some of the terms that <clears throat> they grew up with weren't satisfying to them. And I think as you know, one term expanded, then maybe another way of, of saying, well, that doesn't quite fit me, but this might, or... I am in a place where I can't identify my gender binary, so I'm, I'm, I consider myself non-binary. Um, well, I think it's a combination of awareness. Um, I think some some growing um, acceptance. But as I said, you know, I, I, when I was younger, there there wasn't even the language right. for this. Wanted to talk about that, but I am going to ask you to define non-binary. Um, being neither identifying neither as uh, male nor female. It's all about choice rather than have, having society or other people decide how you should be labeled. 
Right, it's choice, and um, I think it's also just more about an authenticity. Um, I just I don't want to avoid the sense of choice and the the sense that again, you know, in my early years, and probably still for many people, they think that being gay is a choice. It's, it was never a choice for me. This is just how I'm made up, and I think to give people the expansiveness to say, oh, I don't have these two choices. I might have these multiple choices that they um, can, you know, fall somewhere in the spectrum or, and and sometimes go back that, you know, there's also the you know, term gender fluidity, where, you know, at some points in their lives, they might identify more as male and sometimes more as female. And I think given the, um, it's, I think now we have the opportunities for a more expansive expression. So yes, it is you know it's a choice in in how they want to be or and any of us want to be you know addressed by pronouns. But it's not a choice in that I'm choosing not to be male. Sometimes, frequently, more so lately, I feel really discouraged about the human race. There are so many wonderful people out there. Mm-hmm. But I don't understand people who aren't even willing to understand. You know, there's prejudice, there's racism, there's all of this stuff. What is it about us humans that we can't just accept somebody for he, who he or she or they is? I, you know, I wish I had a good answer for that. But I believe, you know, many people get into um, sort of a locked paradigm of what you know the the world looks like in in terms of you know gender race um, ethnic identity and there's a kind of a threat to you know have that challenged um, it really does threaten I think people's worldview and they get very defensive about it um, I makes me think of a story that might be going on a little tangent, but many years ago after I moved back here, and but I was still going back to New York for for, um, for many years um, and would attend the, the gay pride festivals there. And I was sort of walking in between groups and really enjoying myself. And it was, you know, one of those very beautiful, not too hot, you know, June days. But the area in front of St. Patrick's uh, is where usually the, all the protesters are, and there, you know, there's good police presence, and there are their barricades. But I'd gotten separated between groups, so I was walking pretty much alone in that that area in front of you know all the pre- protesters, and being you know hearing just some pretty horrific things, you know, slung at me, and part of what happened was my thought, they don't know me. They're they're throwing these words and the, this hate and this fear towards some idea of who they think that I am. And so, yes, it was a little scary, I have to admit. Um, and, you know, I was grateful for the police presence there. And it was also kind of a kind of an opening for me to realize to not take it personally. That it was, you know, they didn't know me but I was a symbol. It would be hard not to take it personally in those moments, though, probably. Curiously, I think it was it was easier because, yeah. um, because again, they, they, they didn't know me whatsoever. I was just this anonymous person walking through. And, um, you know, I think if I were doing, you know, a talk and, you know, there might have been someone who knew me from high school or something and, you know, yelled out some slurs, that would have been, I probably would have taken that more personally. But I, um, but, you know, curious, it was a very curious experience. Mm-hmm. Yes, you might think that that would be the case, but it was, I think, that, that sense of, um, that's not me. Back to your childhood, when you said that you had to be careful about expressing your feminine side in right. particular. Um, was that within your family, outside of the family, both? 
Um, I think a little bit of both. I think my my mother probably always suspected you know that that I was gay. I think it was more of a surprise to my father. Um, but you know, my, I'm sure my father didn't quite know what to do with this this young man who wasn't interested in sports or would much prefer you know to play with dolls or you know his crayons. He, he didn't quite know really how to relate to me in some ways, and 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 I I to him. Um, um, Curiously, when I did finally come out, I think in many ways my father was much more supportive in the larger sense than my mother, who probably had, um, I know she had undiagnosed mental health issues. So it seemed all right I was gay at home, but somewhat, not so much in front of the neighbors, and, and there would be almost a double standard. This is where your mother's concerned. Correct. So that, um, you know, she was comfortable when you know, I brought home partners and... Um, but when, you know, a neighbor visited and I remember once time, um, it was just a friend of mine. It was someone I was not in relationship, but I had my arm around him because we're good friends. And this neighbor said she was uncomfortable with it. And my mother reprimanded me for that. And I was really, really hurt by that. Were you able to have a conversation with your mother about your feelings? I don't think so. I don't think I really sort of grasped, um, what was going on at the time, um, but I, I was you know, definitely hurt by it. I think I might have, you know, expressed that. Did your brother and sister know you were gay before you came out to the family? No, I think um, they all sort of learned pretty much the same time. Maybe my sister was the first, and um, I, they were very supportive. I don't think it was, you know. A, terrible surprise, but I, I don't think they went like, oh, of course, we're just waiting. Uh, they didn't, they didn't they, do that. Right. I think some families have done and go, yes, we knew we were just waiting for you to say so. What about in school? Um, in, well, in high school, I was very, you know, very cautious about being um, found out, although, you know, when I think of, you know, you know, the red wide rail corduroys that I made at one point. I'm thinking, how did people not know? <laughs> and and um, um, so when I, you know, finally went to the School of Visual Arts in New York, it was just, you know, such a, you know, an amazing place that I could be open and just felt, you know, I think I needed to get that distance. I know some people I knew Move, would might move to Boston or you know and, and Portland was a big draw for for many young um, gay and lesbian people because it was safer than being in rural areas. Are you saying that you left Topsom and you went to New York and finished high school there? No, no, no. For my for my undergraduate work. Okay. Yeah. So you were in what grade? Did you tell me eighth grade? Right. When you moved to Topsom right. or yeah. when you settled in Topsom? Eighth grade when we moved to Lisbon Falls. So I was um, probably in 6th, 7th, and probably first half of 8th grade in Topsom, and then we moved to Lisbon Falls. And that's where you finished high school? Correct. And that's where you hid your true self? Absolutely, yes. Did you ever have any kind of confrontations or painful um, moments? Well, you know, I think there were some, you know, some, some bullying of, you know, not... Uh, sort of horrific, but, you know, I, I was aware that, you know, they, they sort of had their eye on me. And I think just by sort of keeping my head down, um, that was my way of just sort of keeping safe. And New York City, was that a wonderful place for you to be? Oh, it really was. I started the School of Visual Arts in New York um, 1979 in fall. Because you are a visual artist. Right, right. <laughs> I think living in New York probably was much, uh, not more of an education than you know being at the school itself. It was a, a very exciting time as an artist. The uh, you know, the artists of like the East Village were just um, you know exploding, um, and there was still you know you could find you know reasonably priced theater tickets and you know the museums, but also just the, the mix of culture. And also, you know, the gay and lesbian scene and that, um, for the most part, um, could feel comf comfortable if I were, you know, walking hand in hand with, you know, a boyfriend. But there were also other parts of New York that was not safe and just, just kind of intuitively knew where and when that could happen. So it was very, um, 
um, exciting time for me. It was also pre-AIDS, so I was also living there at the time where we started hearing about the um, um, this mysterious illness that was affecting gay men. So um, I was there for that time as well. Were you afraid? Well, at the time I was um, in a monogamous relationship, and um, when and probably stayed in that relationship much longer than I should have. It was not a healthy relationship, but part of that was because I, I was afraid of then going out and um, trying to na navigate the dating scene. So it was not a good breakup, and I was in the place of like, well, just I'm never going to date again, ever, <laughs> so I don't have to worry about that. Uh, so, um, but uh, you know, I think maybe a year later, and someone was you know expressing interest, and I you know thought, well, um, maybe I do want to, and I participated in a research project with Columbia University that was looking into the psychological and sociological effects of this you know, of AIDS on on quote unquote healthy gay men, and once the antibody test was made available, they offered that and you know as an option and optional to find out the results and i chose not to find out the results because i wasn't wasn't dating mm -hmm. and but when you know this person expressed interest in me and i was feeling you know that interest myself i thought maybe i'll go find out and when i found out that i was hiv positive it was really um quite a shock to me like this 86 and in 87 that I got the full AIDS diagnosis. So when you're HIV positive, it just means that they've detected the antibodies, but you're not sick at that point. Correct. What was it that gave you the AIDS diagnosis? Um, Kaposi's sarcoma, which is one of the um, secondary cancers that sometimes people would get at that time. Um, I can't say at this moment what the criteria is, but I think at that time it was either one of the secondary cancers, um, um, PCP, which is a particular kind of pneumonia, um, um, a T cell count, which is a measure of one's immune system below 200. So um, when when I was first HIV positive, I actually first diagnosed. Um, I don't. There were there were no treatments, and. AZT had just become available when I was diagnosed with AIDS, and my doctor actually had to lie at the time um, because it was only available to people with like a CD count before below 200, and mine was still higher than that. But I, you know, I had the capacities, but that wouldn't have qualified me. Maybe that getting you on that early maybe is what's helped you still be here today? Well, there's a mix with that. I, it's actually, um, in some ways, it kind of backfired because I've had. Um, so many um, different treatments, I have resistances mm. to you know, all sorts of different medications. Um, so the um, medication, uh, combination of medications I'm on now, if, the, um, if this fails, um, there's actually not, nothing immediately available. There's something that might be released soon because of where I have resistances and sensitivities for, um, um, you know, the, the science is amazing, the, the, the genotyping or phenotype, I think genotyping that they can do with the, the virus now, but it does show that I have, you know, a lot of resistances to a lot of the meds. When I met you in the late 80s then, hmm. you'd been diagnosed, you were, you had AIDS. They used right. to call it full-blown AIDS. Right, yes. <laughs> that, that, that was the term then. So you had been diagnosed with AIDS. Right. And... Right from the get-go, you chose to be public about it, to talk about it. Whatever motivated you to be so open? I think in, in part was a little bit of, of, you know, I guess paying it forward. Um, when I was first diagnosed and living in Connecticut, New York, um, or in New York, um, I started going to the People with AIDS Coalition. And I remember, you know, having walking around the block a couple times before I, I dared go in. And... I mean, there was just so much fear around it, but so many people, because of their being public, made it that much easier for me to, you know, get the, the support that I needed. Um, and so once I think the, the 
big initial shock, you know, wore off some. I think he still lived with it for quite a while and probably is still there in some ways. Um, I thought I wanted to do something to help those who are coming along. And I thought there was, there was an opening on the board of directors of the People with AIDS Coalition in New York. And I'll put an application in, but I had never been politically active or much of an activist. Um, and, you know, I think always before I said, when I get to this point in my life, I'll do this volunteer work, but just never got around to it. And I thought, well, maybe this, this is a time. And I did not think that they would accept me onto the board of directors. But what was so powerful about it um, is just being listened to for my experience. And that gave me the authority to um, be part of this sort of groundbreaking organization that really wanted to combat the sense of victimization and that that we as people living with AIDS, you know, had a voice and and say in our treatment. And um, I remember the the very first speaking engagement I was asked to do through the Speakers Bureau there. It was at the Parsons School of Design Fashion Institute. So, you know, I was up most of the night before not so much worried about what I was going to say, but what I was going to wear. <laughs> and I think I dressed very, very smartly. <laughs> but, uh, so I think there was uh, a woman from Game and Health Crisis, which is still the uh, preeminent um, aid service organization in New York, and you know, talking about the facts and statistics. And then I got up and told my story. And, and then, you know... Uh, okay, here it comes. When I, I, are there any questions? I, I, I just had no idea what was going to happen. But you know, one hand raised after the other. But I remember one question about, you know, you know, in our fashion work, we often share piles of you know, sewing pins. What if someone you know sticks their, you know, finger on that? And I hadn't even thought about that. And um, but the, the the questions that I got were respectful or you know, out of genuine curiosity. And it, it just really gave me that opening of, again, by sharing my personal story, you know, I was making a difference for others. You became educated about how HIV spread. Right. And so you went out and you tried to educate people. The doctors tried to educate right. the people. There's still some people who don't understand it. Right. So educate us again. Well, it can't be passed casually. It needs to be, you know, passed, you know, either, you know, blood to blood or through, you know, sexual fluids and in and, and a significant amount of exposure, too. Um, so, like, the, the pins in the, the sewing pins uh, would not likely, you know, have um, you know, someone prick themselves with a pin that someone else who was HIV positive pricked themselves before would, would likely not have, you know, infant, almost infinitesimal. I can't say it's impossible. But it you know had to be, it has to be a significant um, exposure, and um, and what's also developed recently with the new medications, where you know some people are, um, the HIV level level is so low that it's undetectable. Um, I, I don't think there's really any risk of transmission sexually, um, so they're they're finding that you know with couples, you know, where one person's zero positive and one, one isn't, and they may not have been as careful as, you know, they might have, And but, you know, one person is on the antiretroviral treatments and um, at an undetectable level. So their viral load, is that the term, is yes. low? Is right. way below right. the, the acceptable. The, the sensitivity of the tests that they have now, which are pretty sensitive, um, I, but I can't remember how many parts per million. Um, the test just can't detect it. Back when you were first diagnosed, AZT had just come out on the market, right. and then there were these protease inhibitors, yeah. and that is like how many years now? 20, 30? Yeah, probably close to 30. I'm trying to think. It's, um, well, it was 1990 that I just heard about the um, protease inhibitors. It might have been two years later, but it might have been 92 when they started combining them. Um, and I remember being... Um, skeptical. It took me a while before I went on them because there would there were many new treatments that came along that you know hailed as this is the breakthrough drug, and then you know six months later, uh, not such a breakthrough as they thought it was, and so I was a little skeptical. Were there side effects? 
Um, not that they recognized immediately, but one of the side effects was uh, raising cholesterol levels. So uh, suddenly people who hadn't had heart conditions before were getting into having to have you know bypass surgery having heart attacks um so some long-term side effects we're still not not sure of um and other yeah d different uh you know liver functions and so but when i started seeing you know people who um you know, months before it looked like they were at death's door. That you know, I, I barely recognized them because they were healthy. Mm -hmm. but, well, maybe I'll give it a try. Because by then, were you feeling pretty miserable? I was feeling pretty, yeah, pretty poorly, and um, and I had outlived, you know, you know, so many friends, um, so many sort of uh, sort of cycles of people in my support groups, um, and. So there was almost a kind of a, a despair of, you know, just let it be over with. I was going to ask you about that. I mean, you have the specter of death over you, even although these medications did offer some kind of hope. It wasn't hope of a cure, was it, at that point? Not at that point, um, but it was um, sort of a hope of um, treating it better. So I think the, um, so that it, the benefits sort of arose gradually is um still kind of uh, i still sort of you know look back and you know you know wonder at what point what did i sort of have a little bit more hope that i might have more time and one of them was um after i was diagnosed i kind of stopped doing my artwork um and devoted a lot of my energies towards the you know, public speaking and activism work and I thought well maybe I'll still be around for a while but as a painter I was never terribly prolific but I thought I've always liked photography and I can get a lot more work done as a photographer in what I think is still going to be a short period of time so that was really took my, my attention for, for many years and I really enjoyed that and and it was there was some trepidation when I finally thought, well, maybe I can trust getting back to doing some painting again. And I'm, I'm still a little bit, um, sort of hold back a little bit here and there. It's almost like every day you wake up and you think, oh my gosh, it's another day. Yeah, or, or my um, my milestone birthdays. I remember particularly like my 40th and again, like, you know, I have finally reached 40. And I, oh my God, I'm 40 years old. How did this happen? But like, I've never thought of before 40 years old. Uh, you know, my 50th birthday, I decided to do a, uh, a nine week silent retreat at a Zen meditation site, uh, center and, and, and very, um, friends of mine here at Portland Friends meeting decided they, they, I needed a surprise. 50th birthday party. I just want to put out there, um, as much as I appreciate all the love, never give an introvert a surprise birthday party. <laughs> I'm so grateful that you did, but you know, give us time for, to prepare. <laughs> I know everybody's going to want to know exactly why have you lived so long? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I think there is a possibility of um, a partial immunity. There are, I forget what the percentage is of of people of some Northern European heritage, um, Scandinavian, other places in, in Northern Europe that have actually um, a natural immunity to to HIV. But you don't have the immunity because you got it. Right. But you might have an immunity that's built up over the years? Or there might be a partial immunity. So it's not like, you know, full immunity, but there might be a partial immunity that, that slowed the progression of the disease. So that that's one one theory I hold. But, you know, I know certainly other people who, you know, took much better care of themselves than I did, um, who, you know, died many years ago. Um, so I think there's no real reason... That I, that I can name um, it's just on you know, as a piece of the um, that natural immunity I don't know if you're familiar with the Berlin patient and recently I think the London patient who was uh, the Berlin patient was someone living with with HIV AIDS um, who also developed leukemia and when they did the bone marrow transplant I believe they specifically looked for some, a match with someone who had the um, that natural immunity mm -hmm. 
and so they had the, the marrow transplant. And he was probably the first person to be effectively, um, he's, he's living free from HIV AIDS without any medications. They, the procedure cleared him of the virus? Right, right. And I think something similar happened to someone in London mm -hmm. recently. So I mentioned, you know, before we began recording about um, uh, a medical, you know, um, protocol that I engaged in was sort of following on that science they um they took some of my white blood cells out through plasmapheresis they genetically altered those white blood cells to create that natural immunity then cultured them i had one course of chemotherapy which was supposed to sort of shock out whatever you know hiv was left and then reintroduced you know again you know, billions of copies of those white blood cells that were originally mine, but then modified with that genetic um, immunity. And then after, you know, a few days after my chemotherapy went off meds. And I think it worked well for someone up to like 18 months or more. Um, it Eventually it did not work. Um, I, I think a few months later, um, I, I remember some, I was actually out visiting some friends out in California and just, just, not quite the night so it's but some something was just terribly wrong and um i think my finally got back my viral count was like up to like six million um and so what you're telling me is that you participated in a, was it a clinical trial yes yes that, that was the word i was looking for a clinical trial um and, and in southern uh, connecticut and I knew some of the risks that, that might be involved, but I, you know, again, you know, speaking of the, those who came before me, um, many people took did clinical trials, so that I am on the you know the protease inhibitors I am on now. Um, so I, you know, felt it was worth it. Um, although it's, I had a little trouble getting my um, viral count back down to undetectable consistently since that time. That's kind of scary. It's a little bit scary because, as I said, it's. Um, it's still very low, but you know, if it, if it breaks through, there's not a lot of options right now. But there mm -hmm. is something, as I said, um, hopefully released in the next couple of months. How long ago did you participate in this clinical trial? Um, I'm trying to think. You know, four or five years ago. It was a two-year study, so even though you know I did not um, um, respond to it, and eventually, I think you know, no, no one did. I think. The longest I knew someone was off meds and still um, undetectable it was a year and a half. Um, but they they continued following me as you know as to make sure that you know other you know, side effects did not happen. So you have helped the people who come after you, haven't you? And I'm sure that it's a stepping stone to something that will work like that. Yes, I, I think it's a very promising um, line of research. How are you feeling now? Um, physically with HIV, AIDS, um, that's probably the least of my, my challenges. Um, you know, again, part of, uh, I, you know, I have kind of type 2 diabetes. Um, and about a year and a half ago, I had a coronary event, which really surprised me because I have um, like freakishly low cholesterol levels. I've been mostly vegan or vegetarian beforehand. Um, but um, but also have you know family history being man over sixty of, and you know, type two diabetes. Um, so um, yeah, yeah, that one took me by surprise. I ended up having um, two stents to correct three blockages, and so grateful for my my sisters worked at uh, the Maine Med Cardiac Cath Lab for many years. So I got um. They were very careful not to, to kill her brother there. They, <laughs> the dear Lord, thank the dear Lord. <laughs> I know there are wonderful, wonderful people there anyway, but I think they're especially on, on guard. Not they to, treated you with kid clubs. Absolutely. <laughs> Is it possible that both your diabetes and the heart issues could be connected to any medications that you've been on? Um, it, yes, actually. Um, medications that affect the immune system including um, some different kinds of chemotherapies have a high propensity to trigger diabetes. I wish someone had told me that 
ahead of time. And I think I was a little annoyed when they told me with that with such a casual, you know, um, you know, my mother did have diabetes, so I do have um, the genetic um, propensity. But um, <clears throat> yeah, so that um, I don't know about the HIV, but I do know of even in the early years, some some medications would trigger diabetes in some people. What exactly are you on now for medications? There are two antiretrovirals. One of them is a combination of three different antiretrovirals. So I guess technically I'm on four, but those are just two pills. Um, two oral medications for type 2 diabetes. Um, I am on slow-acting insulin. There is an anti-cholesterol medication, a very small amount of you know blood pressure medication, um, some medications for my depression. Um, so um, so there, there's, there's, it's quite a, a full pill box. As I remember some of the earlier medications, you had to take them day and night, didn't you? Right, particularly with AZT, that was you know, every eight hours. And I was thinking that not too long about the these pill boxes that were available, these sort of ivory colored. Um, and, you know, at you know, certain public events, you'd hear this familiar beeping. You know, we, we know what that is. So at some point in your life, you didn't think you'd see, you'd never see 40. Right, right. So, you know, again, I was thinking about, you know, this interview coming up and, uh, uh, you know, what an interesting um, relationship I've had to aging and my sense of mortality. Because, uh, again, going back to, you know, the early years, of, you know, my diagnosis and, you know, losing people around me and being, with, you know, actually with some people as they died. And, um, and you know, it was something I discovered about myself that I didn't know that it was easy, that I could do that. Um, and it was not, not everyone could. Um, to be with somebody as they're dying. Yeah, in the dying process. And, you know, I found, you know, those two times when it's actually with someone to be just such an honor. Um, and, you know, certainly heartbreaking but um so um and i also did a lot of work around you know grief through different um you know workshops and um you know did some you know, the elizabeth cooper ross workshops and so I, I really thought and i think at that time really had made some peace with my mortality you know feeling like you know i'd gotten to achieve some things that many people hadn't um and, you know, if I suddenly started my decline, that would be okay. Mm. Then a year and a half ago when I had the corny event, I'm going, well, that was then, this is now. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, it's sort of a different relationship. You know, I'm not quite ready yet. <laughs> what do you have left to do? Um, well, I was curious. Um, there was a, um, sort of a reevaluation of what was really important to me. And I, you know thought about, you know, you know, the artwork and the, um, um, you know, photography. And I think, you know, there was, was there a series of paintings or photographs that, you know, you know, just really felt made a difference in my life or others. And, um, and I'm not sure that that's where it was, but I think it's my, you know, work with youth. And now as we sort of reminisce, you know, some of the, the public speaking opportunities, um, including like some in the, the, the main youth center, you know, when it was a very different main youth center than it was now. Um, those were, you know, really moments of just really felt like I was able to, you know, give something and make a difference in, in people's lives. So, um, so I really haven't been doing much of any artwork in the last year and a half. Um, some of the youth work that I'm doing now, um, I've, last couple of years, I'm, Wondering, like, it's hard for me to sleep on the air mattresses at the overnight retreats and staying up as late. And um, can I continue, you know, doing this sort of work in the way that I have in the past? Um, so, you know, what what is what is what might continue as as meaningful work for me? Um, and I'm still sort of questioning, and I think there has been some sort of post coronary event depression mm -hmm. around that. And it is fall. Yes, yeah, and it is. It's a hard time of year for, for many of us. But you now, at this stage in your life, can look forward. Yeah, I can. Um, but, you know, when I think, you know, I have coronary artery disease, I have type 2 diabetes, I have HIV, um, depression shortens lives, you know, how many years do I really have left? 
in a very realistic way. Uh, and also knowing I, sh I certainly got surprised before. So, um, yeah. Do you consider yourself an old man? Um, uh, you know, I work with teenagers, so there's always going to be <laughs> that. But I, I think there's there's part of that that um, I, you know I don't always feel that like I'm an old man. At the same time, there are some things I think I can get away with, uh, you know, um, because of my age. Um, Actually, I'm a big fan of Project Runway, although you know, I have these great ideas, and I think you know, the, either the very young or the very old can wear outrageous things. <laughs> so, do you, do, uh, you dress outrageously uh, still? No, no, not not often. I think there's still part of me that, that shyness and introvert that sort of wants to blend in, but every once in a while, I'll wear this like a ridiculous hat or something to youth retreats, and I'm going, you know, when you're old, it's called eccentric. And so, <laughs> there's a poem: "When I am old, I will wear purple." <laughs> yes, yes, I was thinking of that as well. So. Um, I, I hope to embrace that more. Um, I haven't asked you for your words of wisdom now that you're so old. <laughs> words of wisdom. Oh, um, you know, I, I think a former partner was asked about you know one of my qualities, and he said, you know, I really appreciated my curiosity, and and I. I hadn't thought of that, but I, I hold on to that, and I think holding on to that that sense of curiosity is um, um, sort of vital. It's, um, I mean, it's it's part of you know that, that Buddhist practice of just continuing looking in and looking in and looking in, and also recognizing that everything has changed. Um, so I you know I think you know to try to hold and, and nurture that, that curiosity. Um, but also, I think, to, um, you know, if there were advice, you know, I can give myself, you know, to, you know, to be a little more gentle you know, on my own self. You know, you know. I always ask people this question, whether they're 63 or 93, or I've had one woman who was 100. What makes it a good day for you? Yes, I was trying to prepare for that question, and, and I do have a Buddhist practice that would call that um, rehearsing mind. So I went through my rehearsing mind, and and I think the um, you know my immediate answer was a day where I said I was being of service in some way that might include being of service to myself, you know, by you know, learning something new. Um, but I think in reality, I have to say, you know, it really depends, um, and particularly in light with struggling with depression, because sometimes I have to set the bar really low. And, and that was some advice a couple of people gave me, and it was sort of hard to take, but you know, sometimes when you know, I get out of bed and get dressed and shave, and sometimes even just, you know, get out physically out of the house, that's a good day for me. Other times, you know, at, when, you know, things seem to be like really cooking at, at a youth retreat and there's some kid having a meltdown that no one else seems to be able to work with that I just can be present to and basically just empty myself out and listen to. And then, you know, an hour or so later, something's happened. I don't know what. Um, and I often actually avoid trying to give advice, um, but just let them know that they're being heard and listened to. Um, and then something shifts. We've talked about so many things, and you're the expert on you. Mm -hmm. Are there any things that you wish we had talked about? Questions that I have failed to even think about. <laughs> oh, I'm sure they'll come to me about you know 20 minutes as I'm I'm, I'm riding home. Um, I think I think we've covered a lot of them. Again, you know my. I think you know a lot of people just don't really fully imagine what it's like to to age and I, I think I have a good excuse for that, <laughs> that that you know I was really given a diagnosis that most people would not you know at that, that the initial one was most people did not live more than a year and a half so uh, you're you're really grateful that you're an old man now well I want to say there, there's mixed uh, mixed feelings because um, I remember one story of my my last boyfriend in New York is Vito Russo, who wrote the Celluloid Closet. Uh, oh my goodness! And um, just just a lovely man. I think not neither loves of our, each other lives, but he just I don't think I liked partner as much as I did him. He just I liked him so much. Mm -hmm. um, and he was having this um, 
banter back with his his closest friend of um, you know my foot hurts my back hurts and then back back and forth and then finally Vito said you know I have AIDS and I'm going to die and his friend said and I'm going to lose my best friend so you know who's who really suffers more that you know that person who, who dies earlier um, or the, the person who's you know living with the grief of their you know, best friends you know, lost that they've lost um I think one thing I had thought about that I didn't mention is um, about five years ago, um, a very close friend of mine died of metastatic melanoma um, just shy of his 50th birthday. And I was surprised how much, um, I want to say a variation of PTSD came up because he was barely 50. You know, he, sh he was, to me, young and vital and um, he shouldn't have died this early. And I think that... Um, you know, that internal voice of, you know, you shouldn't die this early, sort of came in you know, that floodgate of, you know, so many, you know, people close to me that, you know, should not have died that early. So they think there's still a, little, a kind of trauma that... Um, you carry yeah. inside you. Yes. There's this term, too, called survivor guilt. Do you right. ever feel that? I didn't think that I had, but I think there is a, a degree that I do. Um, and I think part of that... Um, being hard on myself might be a little bit of like I've survived all these people but there are times where um, you know I'm run through some photographs of you know people who are long gone um, and you know there, there's a sort of empty ache about you know that, that I'm still here and, um, and they're not well I'm glad you're still here Thanks. what are you going to do for the rest of the day? Um, I think I'm in Portland. I've got a couple of you know, errands to do. It's nice to have a you know lovely clear day after you know still windy, you know blustery and rainy day yesterday. But it's always nice to be here and get a few errands done. Well, enjoy Thanks. and thank you. Well, thank you. been listening to Conversations About Aging, a Catching Health podcast. I'm Diane Atwood, and I've been talking with Tom Antonick, who was diagnosed with AIDS in 1987, the year before the World Health Organization declared the first World AIDS Day. This podcast episode was published the day after World AIDS Day 2019. A lot has changed in the past 30-plus years. When Tom got his diagnosis, it was considered an automatic death sentence. He is one of the few who survived those early years of the AIDS epidemic. Today, we're seeing fewer HIV infections, and because of new treatments, people who have HIV-AIDS are living longer, healthier lives. If you enjoyed my conversation with Tom, please consider sharing it with a friend. You'll find more episodes on my blog, Catching Health, at catchinghealth.com. This podcast was made possible by Avita of Stroudwater, a memory care facility, and Stroudwater Lodge, an assisted living community, both in Westbrook, Maine. You'll find out more about them at northbridgecos.com. Many thanks to Smith Atwood Video Services for editing the podcast. See what else they have to offer at smithatwood.com. And a thank you to the Center for Excellence in Aging and Health at the University of New England for their wisdom and support.